Hello, and thank you for listening to the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast. I'm Ken Cadet. Today, we have a special episode to share with you. Entrust Samantha Maybe recently sat down with Forrester Principal Analyst Sandy Carielli to talk about the state of post-quantum preparedness. This is a big issue. Quantum computers are poised to unleash a new wave of innovation, and they threaten to render today's encryption standards irrelevant sometime in the next several years. Governments and institutions are aware and planning ahead, but as institutions focus on today's threats and making the much-needed shift to zero trust, in some ways the PQ readiness challenge is still flying under the radar. We hope conversations like this will change that. Samantha has been speaking with many experts in post-quantum readiness, and we'll be sharing these special episodes with you over the coming weeks. Feel free to email your questions, ideas, and feedback to Cybersecurity Institute at entrust.com. And with that, thank you, and on to Samantha and Sandy. Welcome, Sandy, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Samantha. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. So I think what I'd like to do is just sort of start with, you know, a lay of the land when it comes to post-quantum and and the threat that it poses. Um, Perhaps, you know, you can just sort of cover from your perspective the state of post-quantum computers today, or quantum computers and the threat today, and the estimated timeline um, when it comes to the threat that it poses to cybersecurity. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Samantha. When we started our research and asked opinions on when is a quantum computer going to be able to break RSA and ECC, there were a range of opinions. You know, we heard some people say, oh, soon five years. We heard some people say it could be 50 years. In general, we tend to fall into that five to 15 year range is our own estimate. And a lot of it will be dependent on obviously how quickly quantum computers advance, whether there are other uh, updates to improve breaking of RSA or ECC that quantum computers can then add on to. Mm -hmm. But the other part of this is there's all, I say that with the assumption that there isn't something already there. And if one puts on the mild paranoia hat for a minute, there is the question of whether a nation state or some organization out there might be further along than we realize. So we don't really know. And the fact is, even if you assume that five to 15 year time frame is what we're dealing with, as we're going to talk about, that really means, I would say starting now, but it really means we should have been starting five years ago. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about, you know, maybe not totally knowing the state of uh, quantum computers, you know, if a nation state has made advances, because when we hear stuff in the news, it's, you know, we know that research is being done by the wealthiest countries and companies with the deepest wallets, but it it really is those public companies that we're hearing most of the news about. So it's it's really interesting that you say that. And on that sort of note, um, one thing I wanted to sort of touch on, you know, right at the beginning, and it sort of leads into this, is that It's interesting how much government action has actually been taking place as of late. Um, So this, of course, is happening at a global level. Um, But, you know, before when it came to watching, you know, standards and regulatory bodies, we were really sort of, you know, all eyes on NIST. And all of a sudden, you know, whether it was the fall of last late last year, we've slowly seen more concrete direction um, on preparing for PQ coming out. You know, we can talk about the White House, they've delivered a couple of memos. They have the Quantum Computing Cybersecurity Preparedness Act, NSA with the CNSA direction. You know, what? what's your take on all of that? 
Yeah, there really has been a an ongoing stream of these types of regulations. And it's kind of interesting to think about that from the standpoint of the government is not usually the ones that are ahead of the ball on these very techie scientific things. Mm -hmm. But they're really they're really getting ahead of that. And I think there are some people, as we go back to your previous question on when this is happening, they do look at government action on that and say, what is it they know that we don't? So there is that element of that, that that does perhaps cause a little bit of suspicion. The other side of it, though, is this is actually good planning because it is going to take a while. But let's talk about some of the legislation and some of the directives that we've seen in the past several months and not even going into the NIST competition just yet. But let's look at, as you said, the Quantum Computing Cybersecurity Preparedness Act. It's prioritizing federal agencies migration to post-quantum crypto. And if you actually look at, you know, some of the terms of that act, it actually says, you know, there needs to be guidance on migration. Each executive agency has to maintain an inventory of encryption that is not up to up to speed, that is not quantum safe, mm-hmm. and they need to have a migration plan. So that the, the fact that there was legislation that's actually saying you need to have that inventory, you need to have a plan. The other thing that's really interesting in that particular act, well, not in that one, but as you think about the national cybersecurity strategy that came out, what, about a month ago? There's an entire strategic objective in that strategy that talks about, they call it prepare for our post-quantum future. And they tell agencies, you need to prepare for migration, you need to have a plan. But the really interesting part of that, the last sentence of there, was the private sector should follow the government's model in preparing its own networks and systems for our post-quantum future. So not only are they telling their agencies, you got to get ready. They're giving a hint to the private sector that we need to follow along. That was really interesting to me. Yeah, that's that's actually great because I'm wondering, too, you know, looking at some of this regulation, how much it does impact the private sector. You know, are, are they feeling that sense of urgency? And, you know, having a statement like that, you know, does it create a sense of urgency? Because, you know, that statement, um, you know, even looking again, it's it's about um government agencies, but the NSA, their CNSA timeline, you know, when it came to software and firmware signing, it it was sort of begin transitioning immediately. So I'm just wondering if this trickles to, to other industries or other organizations creating that sense of urgency. Right now, if you asked me what organizations are most ahead, most proactive in terms of their transition to post-quantum, I would look at public sector, which we've just seen a lot of legislation around that, and I would say financial services. And that makes sense when you think about it, given the sensitivity of the data that is traversing their systems. Mm -hmm. So much financial data, account data, IP, uh, credit card information, trading data, data that is potentially very long lived. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about why that matters shortly. But you know, that kind of data that can be really important long term to organizations, financial services and the public sector deal in a lot of that. In public sector, you might be dealing with government identity identification numbers, mm-hmm. such stuff like that. So they are the ones that are talking about this the most. They're the most ahead of the ball. Does an instruction that the private sector should be paying attention to it add extra urgency? Maybe. It certainly gives a hint. Yeah. 
I haven't yet seen anyone outside of public sector or financial services really run with that hint. Mm-hmm. But it's early. It is. It is. And at least they have some, you know, direction to look at with, you know, some of these regulations or recommendations. You know, we saw the White House memo saying, you know, they needed to designate a lead for collecting the crypto- cryptographic information systems. And that date's already passed. So that should be done. And now they're inventorying cryptographic hardware and software, and that needs to be done by May. So at least there's, you know, a little bit of a, a blueprint that's being created for for other organizations as well. Absolutely. One of the things I think that also comes up by putting in these requirements for conducting the crypto inventory is that it highlights, frankly, how difficult it is today, mm-hmm. that there isn't necessarily a tool sitting out there that you can go to that's going to make that cryptographic inventory easier automated. And so in these early stages where the public sector is being forced to do this, we're learning a lot about what's going to be necessary in order to scale this out as organizations in private sector, whether it's financial services or elsewhere, have to go through that same exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And even just sort of learning from how long it does take, because, you know, we estimate it'll take a significant amount of time. Yeah. Um, Moving on to the NIST competition, again, that's something that people have been watching. Um, Obviously, they've come out with their round three recommendations. Um, What's your sort of thinking around that and how the timing of that is also a factor, you know, considering that these actions and uh, requirements to, to prepare are being put in place? You know, I suspect that it would have been very difficult to put out the legislation and the guidance and the executive orders on migration to post-quantum algorithms if we didn't already have some algorithms approved in the NIST competition. The first set of algorithms, there were four algorithms approved last summer. One of them was an encryption key exchange algorithm. Three of them were digital signature algorithms. At the same time as those were approved, and that was basically the end of round three of the competition, they did announce a round four where they moved four additional algorithms into what I would call additional analysis and going through and seeing if any of them might also be standardized. Early on in round four, one of those algorithms was in fact found to be vulnerable and it was removed from the competition. So there are three left and then there are four initially approved. And where we're at today now is we have some approved algorithms. Now what we have to make sure of is that we're adopting approved algorithms, but also frankly that we are adopting approved and evaluated implementations of those algorithms. Mm -hmm. And that's the other part of it, because it's one thing to have an approved solid algorithm that you think is been evaluated, you think it is in pretty good shape, you think it probably can't be broken, but it's really easy to implement cryptography poorly. So the other part of this that we have to ask ourselves is, What are the libraries that we're using? Have those libraries been tested? Have they been reviewed? Have they been evaluated? Not just what algorithm, but what implementation. And in fact, there was an article in, I want to say it was Dark Reading a couple of weeks ago about how one of the round three approved algorithms could be vulnerable to a side channel attack if it wasn't implemented correctly. Mm -hmm. Now, that wasn't anything against the actual security of the algorithm itself, but it was a warning that if we don't do this right, we're going to have security issues based on faulty implementations, which again, that's not new. We've had instances in the past where bad implementations, faulty, you know, 
writing bad software, writing bad implementations of an algorithm does cause a problem. We need to be aware that that is also something we have to watch, and it's a separate issue from the safety of the algorithm itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just proves that, you know, again, the learning curve is, has yet to really begin, um, you know, when it comes to these implementations and, and any of the journey of, of becoming quantum safe. And we're forcing a learning curve, Samantha, on four, potentially seven algorithms all at once, mm-hmm. or almost all at once, whereas historically, we were maybe trying to learn about one new algorithm every decade or so. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole other ballgame. And I'm sure once, you know, that quantum computer is realized and, you know, these algorithms are in use, there will be another set following that and and it'll just continue on. So one other thing I want to talk about, and, you know, you kind of alluded to it before when we had, um, you mentioned just sort of, you know, uh, governments being leading edge as well as, as financial, you know, as far as looking at preparing is there is a threat out there today, and it's something that I've heard about in relation to to PQ and the PQ threat in the past, but in my opinion, just like regulations, uh, it's popping up more and more, and it's the harvest now, decrypt later threat, and that's the threat, of course, that exists today. So what I'd love to do is, uh, you know, we haven't talked about this previously, perhaps you can, you know, sort of define it and let us know what you think it, it really means out there. Yeah, so let's dive into this. One of the things I mentioned a little while ago was that financial services and government organizations were particularly concerned about the quantum threat because of the data they deal in. Bank account numbers, trading information, government ID numbers, things that are fairly long-lived. My social security number isn't changing. I don't change my bank accounts very often. So let's say that I did business with my bank account. I logged in. I sent information. My bank account information traveled encrypted over the internet. Somebody harvested that traffic. That's the harvest part of it. It's encrypted traffic. They cannot decrypt that today, but they can store it somewhere. And now let's say 10, 15, 20 years down the road, suddenly there is a quantum computer that can break that encryption. The attackers can do at a fairly large scale then, use what's available to decrypt all that previously stolen traffic, even if it's 10, 15, 20 years old, even older, go through it, come through it, and see what useful information is there. Whether it is my bank account number, whether it is my government identification number, whether it is personal information that could make one susceptible to blackmail, any of that is information that attackers can use long after the fact because the data persists in its usefulness past the initial transaction date. So when we talk about harvest now to crypt later, what we're really saying is steal this encrypted stream now. Don't worry about what's in it yet. Once we can decrypt it, even if it's years and years away, we'll decrypt it. Let's go through it and see what useful goodies we can find in there. Yeah. And do you feel like it's something that, you know, perhaps I, I imagine it's what's sort of creating a lot of this government action as of late? Um, do you feel like it should be a bigger concern for others? It should definitely be a concern for organizations that deal in data that has that long lived persistence. Mm-hmm. So financial services, they absolutely have it. Government organizations, they absolutely have it. Folks that are primarily dealing in credit card data, credit cards, 
credit card numbers change every few years. Maybe that is lower risk for them. But there may be other types of information that goes over their networks, whether it is IP or other types of company proprietary information or something like that, that may be higher risk. I could imagine law firms, accounting firms that are communicating with clients, maybe the information being passed that way is of higher higher risk, higher urgency. So I think, yes, it's at least worth considering what is the data that we share? What is the data that traverses our networks, traverses the internet, that if exposed in 10, 15 years, would still be damaging for us and our clients? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I see that happening too with, you know, other industries. You know, you mentioned your bank account doesn't change very often. Healthcare records, that kind of thing, you know, even, you know, yep. utilities. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on that that 10 plus year data that needs to, that sensitive data that needs to remain confidential. Um, you know, even thinking about long life devices too. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. So, yeah, I think the healthcare is a great point, Samantha. Some of the information about our health history, even potentially our mental health history. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking beyond, you know, when organizations do start preparing, you know, not just government and finance, um, which luckily, you know, again, they're creating that sort of blueprint. Um, We sort of alluded to this as well earlier, but as they start preparing for post-quantum and post-quantum cryptography and that migration, what do you see as being some of those greatest challenges? Yeah, we started by talking about the inventory and some of the challenges in the yeah. inventory, but that's scratching the surface, right? <laughs> that's the first step. <laughs> right. That's step one, but <laughs> steps two, three, and four are not easy. And cryptographic migration isn't easy. Mm. You know, you obviously have experience through Entrust of what a lot of your customers went through in the migration from SHA-1 to SHA-256. Yep. And it took a while, right? It took a while. And, you know, I mean, there's the public side and the private side. And I know in the private side, you know, there's still some organizations working through that. Um, yeah, it, it it was a seemingly simple transition that uh, took years. And, right. you know. And that was relatively speaking, just a hashing algorithm. Yeah. So what happens when we're changing something that is more fundamental than that? Mm-hmm. What happens when we're changing something that has different performance characteristics, different storage characteristics, that is often deeply embedded in our code and isn't nearly as easy to rip and replace? It is going to be really challenging to to address all of that. The other piece of it, and I suspect, by the way, that a lot of folks found this even in the SHA-1 to SHA-256 migration, we're not an island when we do this. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of interdependencies between partners, between vendors, between customers, and my ability to migrate to a particular post-quantum algorithm is also going to be dependent upon my partner's ability to migrate to that same algorithm. My vendor's ability to migrate, my customer's ability to migrate, all of that. So we can't look at this just in isolation either as we are planning out our post-quantum migration strategy. We also need to, at the same time, be having those conversations with everyone else in the ecosystem. How are you going to do this? What's your timeline? How does that impact my timeline? And 
and really think about it in a much more holistic way. Absolutely. Cybersecurity today, I know with our business, you know, it is really about the ecosystem and, you know, needing all those integrations, everything has to play with each other. And it's going to become, yeah, a huge challenge because, you know, you can talk to your vendors about a roadmap, but they all kind of have to have PQ on that roadmap and that interoperability and, and stuff that, that needs to happen in order for, you know, again, that quantum safe future. Absolutely. So one of the things that we sort of do, um, and I'd love to I'd love to hear from you. You've provided a lot of really great insights, but just before we do actually wrap up, I was just wondering if you have any sort of final recommendations or takeaways for our listeners on you know either thinking about the quantum threat differently or their preparation. I'd just love to hear from you. Any any sort of final thoughts? I'll hit two items here, Samantha. One I've highlighted a little bit already, the communication with your vendors, the communication with your partners, because I don't think you can emphasize that enough. Really looking at this as an ecosystem play is going to be important in terms of your success in migrating to post-quantum. The other recommendation I will make is continue to follow the legislation. Mm -hmm. It's moved really fast in the last few months. We've talked about some of the executive orders, some of the bills that have passed, and I focus mostly on the U.S. because that's where I'm based, but obviously there are international implications as well. You're going to get some hints as to the urgency based on the types of bills that are passed, the types of orders that are put in place. Pay attention to that. Follow along. If it's applying to government, pretty soon that's going to trickle down to you if you are in the private sector, because chances are your government customers are going to ask you for that. And even if you don't deal in government right now, it's still going to be something that you're going to want to address because attackers you know, are going to go after private sector as well. So yeah. really thinking about and paying attention to the broader ecosystem and look at who's taking the lead and figure out how what you can learn from them and how to follow along and build out your strategy that way. Absolutely. I definitely look forward to seeing how things progress because like we've talked about a few times, you know, there just seems to be a lot more attention on this. So, you know, I think that's it's ramping up. <laughs> it's good. And that's good. It is good. You so often, Samantha, we just we find ourselves playing catch up and it's kind of refreshing. I think we're seeing people educate the government on mm -hmm. why this is important. We haven't always been ahead on crypto things. So the fact that we're actually taking this lead and that we're getting these laws in place, yep. good for us. Absolutely. And if that doesn't create a sense of urgency, I don't know what does. So, <laughs> well, I would love to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate your perspective on, on a lot of these things that are happening out there. And uh, as always, it was uh, wonderful speaking with you. <laughs> great. It was great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Thank you. So that's it for today's podcast. Please keep up with us in new episodes by following us on LinkedIn and Twitter using the links in the episode description. 